Thank you for tuning in to the Veneco Podcast. I am Juan Andres Nisle, and this is episode 9, our first episode in this new season. So get your Venecometros ready, because we have a whole lineup of excellent guests in the coming weeks and months. I'm very excited to finally, finally be able to produce our series on Venezuelan democracy and social movements in a, let's say, more consistent fashion. Now that time permits, we have a new website. Please check it out, venecopodcast.com, where you can find all of our previous episodes, and we will very soon be rolling out our Patreon campaign in the coming weeks, as well as our weekly newsletter. Also, and we'll be launching this in the coming days, we are going to inaugurate our own blog at the Veneco Podcast website, where we plan to publish a blog on social movements in Latin America and the Caribbean. If you know someone, or perhaps you yourself are interested in writing about this topic, please email us directly at info at Please stay tuned. I have the pleasure of having with me today Dr. Maria Isabel Puerta Riera. She's a visiting professor of political science and international politics at Valencia College in Florida, who also teaches sociology at Ana G. Mendes University. She's the author of multiple books about authoritarianism and democratic backsliding in Venezuela and the larger Latin America. Her latest book is The Crisis of Democracy on the Threshold of Post-Democracy, and I can't wait to get my hands on it in the near future, so I'm really looking forward to having this be a Latin Americanist-centered conversation with uh, Professor Puerta Riera. We've got lots to talk about, so without further ado, let's welcome Maria Isabel Puerta Riera to this season's first episode of Veneco. Maria Isabel, welcome to the Veneco podcast. Juan, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Now, Maria Isabel, as I was commenting to you earlier before the show, I've been wanting to have you on the show for quite some time now. Not only are you a very well-respected academic that has studied Venezuelan democracy and social movements, but you're also all over the place. You have written extensively uh, Caracas Chronicles, NACLA, Global Americans, and I have to point this out, uh, you have been very active as the Latin American Studies Association Venezuelan Studies Section Secretary. Now that I'm able to have you on the show, there's a lot to talk about. And before we get to your new book, can you first explain to our audience what exactly is it what you refer as post-democracy? Would you say, for example, that this is some kind of rebuttal to Francis Fukuyama's end of history? Well, um, when Fukuyama predicted that democracy had found a space in time and humanity, where there was no more struggle and it was going to be like the natural environment for not just Western civilization, but basically for all of us here. It was kind of a, a proposal that had little, you know, arguing against. And yet here we are. The crisis of democracy or the erosion of the model. Um, it's not new. Um, it's been decades in the making. But it has also brought a lot of anxiety in terms of um, if this is not the way we can live together, what are we going to build instead? So I think post-democracy is is that kind of a proposal. Okay, maybe it's not democracy, representative democracy or participatory kind of democracy that, you know, Chavez sold it and he wasn't the first one, but it didn't really 
um, cement into a system that you could really bring people together to participate. Because if you look at Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, not everybody is allowed to participate. So that doesn't work either. So for me, post-democracy is not just a crisis of representative democracy or you know, Western liberal democracy. It is also a crisis of society because you need to embrace democracy and practice democracy. It's not just a political system, it's a way of life. So I guess post-democracy has to go in that direction. Yeah, and you've mentioned some examples, but what about other traditional U.S. allies in the region? I'm talking, of course, Honduras, El Salvador, but also Brazil and Colombia. What other countries do you identify as undergoing democratic backsliding or that are on track to becoming post-democracies? Which ones do you think can survive this trend? I think we should worry about Central America because those are countries with very weak institutional uh, frameworks and systems that can easily be eroded because there's a, a historical you know amount of opportunities where that has been uh, put to the test and uh, I don't think there's much that we can say about right now El Salvador being um, a stable democracy it doesn't look like it's going to be anything different that than what we all fear is already happening about Brazil The eternal choice-making process that we live in in Latin America, like a deja vu, you have to choose between the worst of, of both worlds. So it happens in Argentina. It happens in, in, in Brazil. It's probably going to happen in Colombia. But I see a difference when it comes to institutions. I still have faith that something will work out, which is not the appearance in Central America. It, it doesn't look the same. And it has to do with institutions. I'm not saying that probably you're not uh, going to find yourself with judiciary in Brazil that is going to perhaps act in a way that people are not going to feel that it's in their best interest. It would happen in Colombia. But I have more faith in that than the other. Now, um, the problem that I see is that this is not something that's unique to this region. We're looking at, you know, Hungary, Poland, and let's not go too far. I mean, Spain. We have cases where democracy is being put to the test, and it has to do with institutions, but also with people not trusting those who are in charge to model the behavior. And that's why the distrust in, in democracy is not so much about democracy, but what those in charge political actors are doing with the tools of democracy. How do we protect ourselves from that? I think that's the bigger question. Now, you've obviously written a lot about Venezuela, but you've also criticized the authoritarian tendencies of some of Nicolás Maduro's biggest enemies in Colombia, El Salvador, Brazil, etc. Why have you chosen to write about Nayib Bukele in El Salvador or Uribismo in Colombia? And perhaps more importantly, how do you avoid falling into the lugares comunes, I guess, the common places that many Venezuelan analysts trap themselves in when they talk about other countries? Um, 
Well, I think when you believe in democracy, I think you have a, a commitment with what that means. And um, I'm terrified by people like Uribe or Bukele or Bolsonaro, because I can't see this in a black and white kind of, okay, so this is my enemy, so I'm going to go the other way. No, I can't. I mean, both sides, in this case, it's not both sidesism. It's just that both sides, extreme left, extreme right, are dangerous and equal in terms of how they uh, represent a threat to democracy. So what Bukele is doing in El Salvador and what Uribismo is doing to Colombia is enough for me to call it out and also to identify that as a a very uh, damaging argument to make when you are trying to to sell yourself as a Democrat, right. as someone who believes in democracy and you are pushing for democracy in Venezuela, for example, or here in the U.S., but then you go and support these expressions that are the most anti-democratic that you can find, it makes no sense. So I guess it's just trying to be coherent, perhaps. We have to base ourselves Uh, in terms of our politics and principles. I think that's basic. And you can't argue about democracy deficit in your country while you're supporting people who are doing exactly the same. It doesn't matter if Maduro is on the left and Bolsonaro and, and Bukele and Uribismo is on the right. It, at the end, it's going to be the same result. It's going to be a political proposal that's going against individual and collective rights. What do you think is a correct response to this rise of authoritarianism in the region? I mean, should there be a response at all? We already see broad economic and diplomatic sanctions uh, that have been tried in a lot of these countries. You now have the Angles list sanctioning corrupt individuals in Central America. Isn't there an argument to be made that a U.S. foreign policy of democracy promotion is ultimately pushing many of these countries to close relations with Russia and China? I mean, we're currently seeing this in both El Salvador and Honduras. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I think sanctions are sufficient if you use them as a tool to advance a particular, you know, policy within a bigger, you know, framework. Um, sanctions are helpful if you use them to provoke, promote a change in behavior. But sanctions are not sufficient nor efficient when it comes to uh, regime change. I think that's the problem. The U.S. has a default um, reaction to anything and everything that goes wrong around the world sanctions. I think you need to find more efficient ways to not only react to regimes that are just deepening the authoritarianism, like, you know, Cuba or Nicaragua or Venezuela. There's no democracy there. You're not doing anything with sanctioning, except, you know, maybe touching some critical uh, interest of the elites that they will try to circumvent in, you know, they'll find themselves another Alex Tab or they'll, they'll do what they need to do to keep their regime alive. In the meantime, you have humanitarian catastrophes like what's happening in Venezuela. And we're going to have another one with Nicaragua because there's so much that 
the region can do, like Costa Rica receiving, you know, Nicaraguans that are uh, trying to to leave Nicaragua. You're gonna you're gonna hurt the region, and we're gonna have more people coming here in very dangerous conditions. So, what can you do? I think one of the most important things that the U.S. needs to do with its partners, with regional partners like Canada, even Costa Rica. I mean, you you need to involve those who still believe in democracy. You need to support the opposition. I know there's a lot of resistance from uh, progressives here in the U.S. about aiding and, and funding the opposition because there's always this kind of uh, default reaction. Oh yeah, no, that's the CIA and the F, and and they're just going to promote coups and all this. No, you need to support Democrats. Democrats like those who are in the opposition that believe in a transition to democracy, redemocratization. You need to support them because otherwise they are going to rely on other actors for funding and support that perhaps are not the best when it comes to solidify a coherent and unified opposition. We have fragmented oppositions in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, and I'm uh, a little hopeful that what I see in Cuba is going in another direction. Right now, the opposition in Cuba, probably they're not solidified, but they are working together and you see the results. So my my opinion about what to do is use sanctions as a tool, but that's not the policy. That's a mistake. It's very inefficient as a policy. It's part of a toolbox that you have, but you need more creative ways. And one of them, it has to be an articulation with the opposition and solidifying supporting political parties. Look at the disaster of political parties that we have in Venezuela. That's something that you're not going to go anywhere with that. Isn't that a slippery slope, though? I mean, uh, for instance, the opposition have not conducted any internal primaries in years. And we could also talk about Operation Gideon and other undemocratic tactics. But it ultimately seems that some sectors of the traditional opposition in Venezuela do have an exclusionary bone. Who, in your view, should the United States identify as the democratic opposition in Venezuela? Unfortunately, you're right. And uh, if you look at polling, you'll see that no one. Mm -hmm. That's the, the, the best, you know, that's what people want. No one. And that tells a lot about our political class and specifically the opposition. Um, I've, I've read people say, you know what, we need a renewal of the whole opposition. I would agree with that. But I would also ask, what's your plan? How are you going to renew? Because I've done political party, I've done politics. Like I've been part of a political, of course, 20, more than 20 years ago. But what I mean is it's hard. It's tough. You need a lot of financial support. And believe me, not everyone is going to put everything on it, bet everything on it, because you need to also understand that with a, a, the economy that the country has, How many people are willing to do that, to put their life in, 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 in suspense and, and just wait for some people have been waiting more than 20 years for this. So I think there has to be a more rational approach. Yes, I would love to have 
a much better prepared political class, elites, because they are elites. We have to understand that they are the elite. But I would love to have much better prepared politicians in Venezuela, but that's what we got. Let's talk a little about your new book. As we've mentioned, it just came out earlier this year, and it is called The Crisis of Democracy on the Threshold of Post-Democracy. So you refer to these global trends as a crisis, but to play the devil's advocate, how convinced are you that democracy is a preferable or more efficient mode of governance compared to other political projects? Some would argue that, for example, authoritarian regimes like China, Singapore, and others have made have also made important progress in human development despite operating under institutionalized autocracies. Is democracy, whether liberal, representative, or participatory, is it, is it in the end the best form of government currently existing? Um, I think the problem is not democracy as a model or as a system um, because the, the original concept was way too different. It was exclusionary. It was, you know, um, what we have, or at least the notion of representative liberal democracy has nothing to do with that democracy of the ancient Greeks. So we have evolved. I think the problem is that once you have the, and, and I think this is a valid point, why not explore other uh, options? The problem is that the other options leave little room to this sort of combination of uh, equity and individual freedom. And I think the only system that can maybe not fully guarantee, but at least it's not as restrictive as the others, is democracy. Because, yes, there's always a struggle between that you know, the balance between equity or it's not equity, really, but it's a sense of justice. And how do you combine it with individual personal freedoms, which is exactly the debate that we are living right now, not just in the US. It's the it's at the foundation of democracy. And this is what's being eroded. You want people to guarantee, you know, safety in terms of the economy, that you will do whatever you need to become successful in your private initiatives. But then you want to leave society and leave them at their own so they can figure out how they will do that. Because you don't want taxes to be raised. You don't want a safety net for people because you're not going to contribute to that because you're too busy with your trying to be wealthy or trying to increase your wealth. And then when you say this, you're a progressive or you're a communist. I think that's the problem. We still are struggling between the idea of let's give people a fair chance. And that has to do with justice. Democracy needs to find a way where people like Jeff Bezos and, you know, all the wealthy billionaires in the world can do what they do, which is create wealth. But also, um, they are having a lot of opportunities that other people do not have because probably they weren't born into, you know, wealthy families or they didn't have that luck. But why not create a system where people do not need to be wealthy to have health care, to have 
a good education, that your education is not does not depend on the zip code where you happen to live. So I think those are things that are basic to democracy, that are critical to a democracy, and that has nothing to do with you being a communist or a socialist. And I think that's the problem, that we don't see that as part of a democracy where people are ideologically interpreting what should be part of the features of a political system, regardless of you being one uh, on one side or the other. And democracy is failing because most of those political actors that have the power to make this possible are more concerned about how does that look in terms of their ideological base. You're listening to the work of Amazonic Vibes, and this is episode 9 of the Veneco podcast. Our guest is Maria Isabel Puerta Riera, author of The Crisis of Democracy on the Threshold of Post-Democracy. Before the break, we were debating the merits of democracy over other forms of governance. And even if one were to examine it under the logic of social movements, some sort of democratic government is ultimately likelier to be more accountable to ample sectors of civil society. And I want to bring up this point to open the discussion about Venezuela. Social movements, first under Chavez and then Maduro, let's say, have had complicated relationships with feminists, indigenous and environmental movements. How would you describe the agency of social movements under Venezuela's current authoritarian context? Unfortunately, I think that's just propaganda for Chavismo and then Madurismo. I mean, um, during Chavez and with this continuum of, of Madurismo, it's been more about creating the sense that they are very progressive in social issues, but at the end, or di very deep inside, they're very conservative. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just when it comes to women and women's rights, uh, when it comes to um, same-sex marriage. I mean, LGBTQ rights in Venezuela are non-existent. So it's just, uh, it's not in reality a progressive movement that has been, you know, that has grown within Chavismo. I think they have used their discourse, their social movement discourse, just to score political points when it comes to Latin America. But if if you go and, and search for women's rights, LGBTQ rights and others, they, they seem to be very conservative. I don't see the environment. Look at what they're doing in Arco Minero and, and right. all the, the destruction they are promoting and benefiting from economically. And where's that eco socialism? They, uh, they touted for years. I was in the university back then and we had colleagues from Chavismo. All their doctoral dissertations were about eco socialism and all this. What's that? What are you doing with, with the destruction you are promoting? No, that, that's just for them to create, you know, a brand. That's a branding operation, but they don't believe in that. Right. Um, 
Another theme that you've written a lot about recently, and I have to say I find this subject fascinating, is that of the strongman or caudillo leanings found in Latin American diasporas in the United States. You've written about the Magasuelan phenomenon in Florida. They even named a street in Miami after Alvaro Uribe. And of course, there are those diasporas who admire Bukele and Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro. Is it fair to say that all of us have a little inner chavista inside of us, no matter our ideological preferences, this need to come out on top and marginalize opponents? Why do you think our diasporas react this way? Why is there no sense of irony in our communities? You know, I started working on that because I was so surprised by the Megasuelan brand, you know, political identity last year. I was so surprised. But, you know, I found fascinating information. I haven't still, I, I have yet to, to finish this part uh, of, of my research, but I, I find this to be fascinating. Uh, first, there is a difference. There's a Magazuelan in Venezuela who does not really have an idea of what's going on here and what the political, you know, reality of this country is okay that's the venezuelan magazuela right um i've i've heard from family members that in venezuela you have a maga hat and that's it you are you know within the trend you're in now the magazuelan here in the u.s it's um i think it's challenging to understand that rational i have family close family, uh, friends and members that have experienced the same thing we experienced with our family in Venezuela between Chavistas and not Chavistas. I've seen that here with Trump supporters and non-supporters within a Venezuelan family. It's broken again. It's broken up again, family members. Um, it's created, uh, you know, Thanksgiving last year was pretty rough for some that I know of. So this is a revival of what we experienced in Venezuela. Now, the reasons, um, you know, I found something interesting that I'm trying to, to work on a more um, serious way, not just interpreting what people say, but really like look into the theoretical framework. And we have some, some leads, some, some intuition and some really good basis. Um, there's the struggle of Venezuelans trying to fit in the American society. And in particular here in Florida, you know it uh, better than anyone. Um, this is rough because on the one side, you have Cuban Americans with a very, you know, strong political identity. But then you have uh, Puerto Ricans who are Latino, but they're Americans. Their approach to this situation is totally different. So how, how do I see this? I live in Central Florida. So my experience is closer to Puerto Ricans than Cubans. Mm -hmm. The experience in South Florida is way, way different. We have Venezuelans that probably make between one and a half, two percentage of the, you know, of the electorate here in, the, in, in Florida, they're not going to make a difference. Puerto Ricans are going to make a difference. But still, Venezuelans are very much influential because Cubans 
Colombians, Nicaraguans, they're going to vote in a way that Venezuelans are interested when it comes to, you know, Maduro, the sanctions and all this. So mm -hmm. we're going to see this uh, with Colombia's presidential election. We're going to see that. You're going to see the scare. They're going to talk about Petro if he's the candidate and he's the communist and he's the Maduro, uh, Maduro's and Castro's candidate. You're going to see that. And you're going to see that narrative. What happens is Venezuelans trying to fit into this, you know, puzzle, it's it's very difficult because on the one side, you see Venezuelans referring to, I don't want, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm fisc fiscally conservative. When you hear a Venezuelan say that, and you ask them, where did you go to college? Did you go to a private college? Oh, no, no, no. I went to the UCB. So you're fiscally conservative, but you went to a, a free tuition, a five-year college, which you paid zero for. And you're going to tell me here, you don't want Americans to have a free tuition to your community college. That's what we have right now. We have Venezuelan Americans who really, they just, they've forgotten where they come from. And I think this is fascinating because I've also found a lot of them were Chavistas. Mm -hmm. So they supported Chavez in Venezuela and now they supported uh, Trump here in the U.S. And you know what? It sounds very logical. It is. Although, yes, they might be very different in terms of the ideological discourse. But yeah, it fits a pattern. Yeah. So. Probably it's just the caudillo that we need in our lives to lead our lives, to organize our lives. Probably that's, I think, the best explanation. All right, let's try to end this episode on a at least a positive note. <laughs> What gives you hope for the region and specifically for Venezuela? Are you at all optimistic about negotiations in Mexico between the government and the opposition? And finally, as a follow-up question, what are some good examples that you would consider of democratic governance in Latin America? Uruguay, Chile, and Costa Rica, they tend to get good marks according to Freedom House, Transparency International. But I'm curious about your thoughts for the future of the region. Yeah. Well, I'm not very optimistic, um, not just because of the region. I think there is a... Um, this is an episode of uh, democratic recession that will need a lot of effort, um, not just internally for each country, but like a global effort because it, it's overlapping the pandemic recession. So when the economy is not that good, you know that political systems are going to feel the burn. Um, you know, it's going to be very difficult and you're going to need a lot of support and uh, you're going to need a lot of big governments to recover faith in democracy and when you have a republican party and and in europe these far extreme far right political parties it's going to be very difficult because people want the economy to change but they don't have patience i think there has to be a way for a global uh re-democratization effort there has to be a way otherwise it's going to be a complete catastrophe because what we're looking at, the immigration surge, the economic failure, um, this is going to hit very hard and no one will escape. So I, I think it's going to be more of a need 
than just, you know, we need to, to better our country. It's going to be a, a need to, to protect the whole, at least Western hemisphere. Now, I would like to say that I've always been interested in Costa Rica because I remember my mom went there when things were not looking good in Venezuela. She went there just to take a look at what was, you know, what was so good about Costa Rica. And I remember one of the things that most um, surprised me back then, and I'm talking about, I don't know, maybe it was 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I don't remember. Um, Costa Rica doesn't have uh, an armed force like we have in most of, of the region. But the explanation was what really, I think, is what we need to look into. Um, Costa Rica decided to invest in education. I think the problem we have in the United States, the problem that we have in Venezuela, the problem inequalities, educational gaps, that's what creates the condition for autocrats, fascists, authoritarians to reach power and keep it. We need an educational revolution and we need it here in the US and we need it in the region and Latin America. We need more educated people. That's what we need. Maria Isabel Puerta Riera is a visiting professor of political science and international politics at Valencia College and the author of The Crisis of Democracy on the Threshold of Post-Democracy. Marisabel, thank you so much for this conversation. And as I've mentioned, I, I really have been wanting to have you on this show for some time. So I can now say I'm narrowing down my Veneco interview bucket list. Thank you so much. And I uh, hope we can uh, have you on the show some, sometime again in the future. Thank you, Juan. I really do appreciate the opportunity and the conversation. This was really great. Thank you so much. Gracias.